Hi there, and thanks for listening to Shim Satira's very first podcast series, Sounds Like Folk. My name is Joanne Barry, and I am the Repertory Director with the National Folk Theatre at Shim Satira. My involvement with Shimsa began as a nine-year-old child and I've been working with the company as a performer, teacher and all-round folky for the last 15 years. Despite the current restrictions, the creative impulse to swap our stories and engage with our audiences remains. I hope you enjoy this new way of Bahan Tiacht, or gathering together, allowing a window into Shimsa Tira, which itself was born from a coming together of like-minded people a place where ideas and stories are celebrated. Today's guest is Michael Keegan Dolan. Michael is an award-winning choreographer and theatre maker and was the artistic director of Fabulous Beast Dance Theatre from 1997 to 2015. In 2016, he founded Tach Dausa as a means to forge stronger connections with the native traditions, language and music of Ireland. Michael is also currently an associate at Sadler's Wells, London. As you will hear, we dive straight into conversation, a conversation about place, language, dance and theatre making. I hope you enjoy the chat. I mean, I really think I feel like I'm a Longford man, although people say, no, you're not. You were born in Dublin and you were raised in Dublin. But I spiritually, I feel like I'm from Longford and I lived there for for about 15 years, I think, before we moved to Kerry. Mm. I thought like I thought I was fairly hardy, you know, because I lived on the verge of the bog. And, you know, my ancestors had built this house down in a bit of a hole mm. near the bog. And I thought, we must, I must be fairly tough now. I've lived here for 15 years. And I'd heard all the stuff about West Kerry, the weather. And, yeah. and then when I, you know, when I moved here first, it was July. And then we're heading into the winter. And people were saying things to me like, oh, you're ready for the winter. And I was kind of thinking, well, you know, what's your, what's your problem? Like, I know about the winter in rural Ireland. Yeah. Then it happened. You know? yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, okay. Now I know what you're talking about, you know, it's a whole other shooting match. But it's, I think it has that, uh, as you say, you feel like you're alive and it, we're so connected to it. Yeah, yeah. We de- and for sure in this, I've lived in the country now for a long time. So I, I kind of forgotten what it is to live in a city, but I know in the countryside, you're really connected to it because you see, you literally see the seasons unfolding before your very eyes. Like if I walk down there now, you know, you've been, you're seeing the beginning of the buds on the trees. Now I'm not saying there's not trees in cities, but there's something about the immediacy of, of, of living in the countryside where you really feel the seasons coming and going. And that's gorgeous. Absolutely. You know? I am. Um, I wanted to go back um, a little bit just to tell you a memory that I have of when I did your workshops in uh, Dublin. Oh yeah. Two week. It was a two week uh, sort of intensive with the beasts and yourself and I think Robbie Harris came in and Colin Dunn and it was it was brilliant. But there was one particular moment for me where we had to teach um, another uh, person in the class a song, and I ended up teaching you the words of a song which are from which is from the Blaskets. Oh brilliant. What was the name of the song? What's the name of this? Can you remember the name? Yeah, of it? it's we used it in one of our shows alone about I think it's it's Reykniknamanagwiva. Okay, wow. And it's so funny now that like that was my first time sort of interacting with the company and learning from you and and now you're in West Kerry. I just think that's absolutely brilliant. It's like a big circle. Maybe it's your fault, Joe. Yeah. Maybe. 
Maybe you cast a spell on me in 2009. Yeah, I know. But it's funny because I, I remember when I was teaching you the song, you were like, oh, you know, because there was definitely a sort of a, right, I really want to know about this. And I, I want to, I want to um, tell me what it means. Like you were really anxious to know what it meant. You know, what do <laughs> what the words mean? Because I don't know what they mean. Because it was Oscoilin, right, then? And yeah, because uh, that was 2009. Yes. Because I, I, I have a very, you know, I remember it very well. And then I'm, then I'm, then I started when I met Liam. Then Liam O'Wainley was around 2010, winter. And then we worked together in 2011. And then he'd brought in Carmel Begley and Matthew Ocasita and Ethnony Cahine. So the Irish, you yeah. know, that was probably around then when when you were teaching me that song. I was beginning to get the itch. Yes, indeed. which has ultimately led me up the mountain here. Yeah, in exactly. Exactly. You know, so so it's great. No, it's it that's it's it's really it's a really lovely, beautiful thing. Like it's 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 my favorite thing, you know, at the moment for sure. Tr you know, my relationship with all of that story. Yeah. Trying to figure it out. And really the technical thing about trying to learn the language and get enough of a grasp of the structures. But it's like you're trying to learn two languages a little bit in Corcoglina because you because you have your Kaidan, your kind of standard Irish education from the Leaving Cert. Yes. And then you have the Kanum the Tir, which is so beautiful. Like it's so particular and gorgeous in the way the sentences are structured and the musicality of it. Mm. So I'm trying, you're trying to learn that as well as the standard Irish. So yeah. it is. It is a bit like learning two languages. Yeah, which, yeah. Uh, which is great. I, I get there. Yeah, absolutely. I heard a lovely. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the poet Kieran Ye. Uh, it rings a bell now, but I, I can't think of a poem. I think she she actually was in a small sort of a film. I think I actually watched it on your one of your maybe on your Facebook page. But <laughs> then I must know who she is. Yeah. Tell me about it more the translation that I really sort of was like, oh, that that so resonates with me was, she said in my own words, you know, she believes that everyone's soul in Ireland has an yeah. Irish syntax. Now it's coming back to me now. Yeah, yeah. I know I know the film you're talking of. It was yeah. Cougar, it was made it was made for other voices. And it was a group of uh, Gaeltacht based yeah. artists. And my partner, Rochelle, was dancing okay. the song that Mirren Olive was singing that's right, that's so right. yeah yeah I love that piece yeah she, I just could so resonate because I all I have felt like that from a very young age like I I understand I don't speak it but I understand it but she believed that the syntax of everyone's Irish soul is Irish and and can understand it regardless of whether or not you're flu you're fluent or not yeah yeah like when you're learning it again and like I have these two-hour classes in the mornings and we every Wednesday with this amazing woman called Catherine Nicahil and every so often I have these moments like of denouement like where where she'll say something and it's just it's just so beautiful like or it's so gorgeous or, or, or like you know it just I can't even explain it yet but there's something about this memory of connecting with some part of myself like at all and I, I have to hold back the tears I know in my Irish class and then, then then that made me think that that's probably one of the biggest obstacles to learning the language for 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 other people who might be see the world sim in the same way as I do is that it, it's so it can be a very emotional um yeah. process absolutely you know I, I know when you're learning and when you're younger it's kind of maybe that depth of engagement 
isn't happening. So you're learning it like it's French or German or something. I know, I know. A bit older and then you're learning it and you're open to that connection. It's very emotional. Just to go back a little bit as well to your Irish um, connection with Irish music and, and the, the movement, because when I watch it, it feels like uh, I think you're one of the or- only choreographers that it looks like the dancers are inside the music. You're great. Well, that's great. <laughs> Thank you very much. You've done your job. <laughs> I can retire. Yeah. <laughs> but in terms of how you create that choreography, like, do you, let's say for Rian with Liam O'Mein Lee, did you take that album and take those, that music yourself and, and, and teach or put upon that movement? Or did they, those dancers came up with that stuff themselves? Um, I suppose it- mostly B, mostly the second uh, uh, answer. But I suppose there's a good bit of a little bit of A in that I would have discovered the album. If I was Robbie Harris, actually, whose name you mentioned earlier, gave me that album. Or he it was Robbie who told me about started talking about Liam first, I think, mm. because Robbie had worked with me on a show called The Bull mm. back, back in 2005. And I think yeah, yeah, uh, this fella I work with called Manny Obeya, who's Nigerian, sang um, a Shano's song in The Bull. I think it's the Queen and the Three Vira. Yeah, that's yeah or the Three Vira. And uh, then uh, Robbie said, you need to talk to this guy, to Liam. You know, Liam's doing this amazing stuff with Shanos. And then I think I got my hands on hit Liam's album, Rian. And what happens then with me, if I, get, if I have an album that I like, uh, and I, I'll try not to exaggerate, but I listen to it, like my, my wife or my partner will tell you, like, I will just listen to it thousands of times, like to the point where my children are like, oh, no, (laughs) no. So I suppose I would be completely immersed myself in, say, those 10 songs. Mm. And then when the dancers, the dancers on Rian, for example, none of them were Irish. Yeah. And most of them hadn't been in Ireland or had very little connection to Ireland or to Liam or to our tradition. So then when you, so Liam was in the room the whole time. So, you know, mostly if you work with musicians, you, you might get them there most of the time or some of the time, but Liam, to his credit, was in the room from eight o'clock in the morning to eight o'clock at night every day. Mm-hmm. And so he would just, he, 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 when you say, I used to ask Liam about, um, we, we sometimes we would talk about practicing, you know, like, do you practice? Or like, I think I was talking about learning an instrument or teaching my children the, an instrument. And Liam was kind of like, no, you, you don't practice. You just play music when you want to. And in his case, from where I was sitting, like Liam just, just, loves, just loves playing music. So he just plays music all of the time. Like, and I mean, all of the time. So, you know, you'd, come, you'd go in in the morning and you'd, we'd, we'd do a bit of training together, you know, to build up our, you know, or whatever, or lots of, I won't go into that too much, but then he would just start playing music at about 10 o'clock after breakfast. And those dancers who, who, who I picked, you know through a bit of a lengthy process just danced and danced and danced and danced and danced and then at some point we just started to harvest stuff like give movements names and make sentences and a lot of it was them some of it was me Mm -hmm. Uh, it was all in response to the music to the way Liam was playing it and then also like the other musicians started to join just to arrive one after the other you know Cormac would arrive or Matthew would arrive and so then you'd have the Ilum pipes or the concertina Mm -hmm. And um, I was funny, I was looking at Rian again there recently. I, I think, you know, we're all getting a bit nostalgic in all these lockdowns. Yeah, and I was just thinking how, um, well, I was thinking it was great, actually. Uh, 
and not blowing my own trumpet. Like I'm not saying I'm great. I just thought I thought it was great, but I also thought, God, I'd love to be doing it now with what I know now, because because I, I hadn't really made a lot of shows that were purely choreography or you know what I mean, purely dance music shows. That was the first one. Yes. Uh, up until then, I, I got fairly handy at doing the the, the theatre with movement, like Swan Lake or Giselle. So like now, like what I know now, if I could bring that wisdom to that particular constellation of musicians and dancers. Yeah. But as you know, in the dance world, like it's so transient. Mm. You can, we'd never be able to get back to that. Like that's, that, you know, that's it, it's over now. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, um, yeah, it's very much the second sentence you used to describe how it might be. It was very much to do with the dancers immersing themselves and me just, um, massaging the, 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 the unfolding. Yes, yes. I mean, the last thing I'd say about it is that maybe, I don't know if choreographers consider this enough, but for me, it's about, it's not about me coming in with a plan and being a brilliant craftsman because I'm not, and I'm not great at planning, but what I, what I like to do and what I believe in firmly. And I think Liam, Liam fed this, this part of me like because he, he had also he, he would agree with this I think mm -hmm. is that it's about you create an you, you create an, an atmosphere you know and it's not hocus pocus it's not like you know burning <laughs> incense although that's lovely too yeah but it's about picking a studio maybe with, with good light in a nice place and picking people who who won't argue too much or you know who, who maybe you get along and who could who could maybe have respect for one another and maybe to be clear and articulate about why we're doing this thing together and then um, and, and talking about how it might be for the audience, maybe a little bit. And so you create a you create this it's kind of this space where things are where, where, where you create the potential for really nice things to happen mm. uh, for people and a space of trust and a, a place of listening. And, you know, yeah, yeah, you you. you you, you make sure that that space is, is happening for those dancers and then they do the rest really, you know, they'll do it all actually. Then. You, used, uh, you used the word atmosphere, you know, to describe sort of how you create the work. And I think that's a real, uh, a lot of your work, especially the dance theatre stuff is very atmospheric. You know, it brings you on this sort of journey where it's dark and it's beautiful and it's joyous and it's, it's sort of, um, it's like a roller coaster, you know. I remember the first time I saw the bull, and I I was absolutely rooted to my chair. I couldn't get out of my chair after I saw it. And Jonathan was actually with me, Jonathan Kelleher, the art artistic director, and we just looked at each other. And we're like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> you know, it, it was it was like an assault, but in a good way. You know, it was the yeah. scenes were just, and that that carried on. You know, we went to London. We saw Petrushka, the Rite of Spring. We Lochnahalla was another um holy shit moment. Holy shit moment. Like it, you know, we make folk theatre. I think you take it to another, take it to another place. It's contemporary folk culture. It's 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 really um joyous, but really authentic. Well, thank but first of all, thank you. Uh, that's very nice to hear. Because you you know, you don't get we don't hear you don't hear that all the time. <laughs> Oh, thanks for that. Like that really is nice. Um, holy shit is great. I mean, I suppose I, I love that what you said about folk theater. She, you know, because 
that's what I tell people I do. I don't use the word contemporary much at all. I think it's a tricky word. I think folk can be a tricky word too, but my feeling at the moment is folk is less of a complicated word than contemporary. Um, uh, you know, I had a few funny experiences down here with, with local dancers. You know, there's some really good local set dancers who Cormac introduced me to because Cormac's sister had a set dancing group, the back currents pub in that little room. Yes. You know, and then we know there was no drinking. It was just dancing and music just to be clear about that it wasn't like that but uh, there's a few dancers there um you know and they're they're not like um they're not like dancers as in living in london going to auditions they're one of them he's, he's a painter decorator but he's a brilliant dancer and i think we talked about he asked me what i did you know and i was trying to explain and i think contemporary dance came up and like he just was like you know like you know i don't know what he was like he was so dismissive and rolled his eyes and said some well-chosen words and I just kind of nailed it and it really made me think about how you know 99% of the population perceive that word and then someone else asked me in my Irish class like, what do you do and I said oh I do contemporary dance and they were like oh is that like interpretive dance and they started doing this kind of you know <laughs> oh I know I've heard I've heard all those things I've heard you know what, so you know what I mean and then because because like I I am really interested in the audience and in in, pe in the people um so I started thinking well what is it then that I want to do so I think it is folk yeah. folk dance theater dance theater is a really complicated one too but um yeah someone asked me again recently what's your favorite contemporary piece of artwork and I it came out of my mouth so fast I was ashamed of myself I, I didn't want to say this but it came out so fast I said and it was a podcast too you know and I said like I don't give a shit about contemporary art you know and what I meant to say was that it's not about like we can be a little bit over um, concerned with the new. So if something is new and groundbreaking, therefore it is good. But that's not necessarily true at all. There are old things that are really good and really important and more and more important than new things. So it's not about whether it's contemporary or not. Like it doesn't need to be new at all to be to be um, to have that holy shit moment. Yeah. Um, and the, I mean, the other thing I'll just to finish is to say like, I suppose the thing about the bull, like that was in 2005 and you said like the assault, the assault on the senses. Well, back then I was in the business of assaulting people's senses and I probably didn't even know it at the time. Mm. See, I'd made that show Giselle, which people, you know, there's a moment when people decide your work is good as well. Like the, 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 the establishment. Yeah. And what I mean by that is people who have the money to maybe present your work or produce your work. Uh, and in that, when I made Giselle, people, who had money, who could produce my work, represent my work, decided that I was good. Um, and then the bull followed that. And in the interim of having a show that was decided that it, people had decided it was successful, and that's a whole other thing. I moved back to Ireland. I had been living back. I'd gone to London and lived in London to train. I went to train and I never came home. And then I finally came home in 2004. I made Giselle in 2003, came home in 2004, was living in a caravan in the Midlands of Ireland, where my ancestors were from. Um, my mother's, the Keegans are from the Midlands, from Westmead, not from, my dad's from Longford. And uh, yeah, I made the bull and it was right in the middle of the Celtic Tiger. And I had come back to what I thought was gonna be my, you know, my the beginning of the journey that maybe we, I started with you in 2009 in the studio at the dance house. Like I thought I was gonna come back and find out, find my Irish alter ego. 
you know, Michal, Machegan, Odolan in Westmead. But I came back to this country that had gone completely bonkers. Um, and, I, and I was trying to, I was trying to do up an old rune. Like I was living in a caravan and I was trying to do up this old schoolhouse in, in a place called Emperor in Westmead. And like you couldn't get the builders to come because they were building housing estates. And when they'd come, they were always in an t- awful kind of mess. And they were, it was just awful. Um, and so the bull was a kind of a fuck you, fuck everything moment, um, which, I'm, which I was kind of ashamed of then later. I, I, because what happened then, sorry, I, I don't want to go on and on, but the bull you know, then got presented in London. And um, it was a, in Dublin, it had been a kind of a controversial success in inverted commas but there were lots of people who had who said who were saying really critical and negative things about it and me you know there was people ringing joe duffy it was kind of very funny at the time it was exciting in some ways too yeah people were saying things about me and joe duffy that i had done this and done that and there was the letters to the irish times and my father my father was my father was still alive he died just after that but he wrote this lovely letter defending me to the Irish Times in response to someone who was criticizing me. Right. Someone wrote to the Irish Times that I should stick to the day job after the bull, you know, that I, meaning dancers should dance okay. and kind of keep their mouths shut, you know, age the veil and, you know, uh, don't be involving yourself in, in issues to do with, you know, politics or society, just dance, right. which is a very interesting moment. But my dad wrote this letter in, in defense of me and. Um, that became a really significant moment in my life because my father, you know, he, he struggled to kind of find a ways to support me in this profession that I'd chosen, which was so difficult. Um, and there was no validation, you know, no, no, no moment where you could really, you know, it was difficult to have the moment where you got your MA in, when you're a professional choreographer. You just had to rely on a review in the, in the Times, you know. Yeah. So my dad found it really hard to support me. Um, and I was always broke. But when he wrote this letter, it was he my dad was very good at writing letters. And it was a moment where he could fully support me. So so a very beautiful thing came out of that show. But to finish the story, that show went to London and it was a much bigger success in London in that it was not a, a controversial success. It was like a big success and it won an award and it got all these these five star reviews. But I realized then in that so I was I was in a taxi with my cousin Declan Kybert, who's this amazing academic, and I I plucked up the courage to ask him, what did he think of my work, you know, because he'd seen Giselle in the bull, and he turned. I was getting out of the taxi, and he said to me, and I, something like this, I'll paraphrase. He said, "You need to review your uh, perception of rural Ireland." He said that. He said you need to reconsider your view of rural Ireland. And then I thought about London and I thought about, uh, and I'd, I'd also heard this, this great historian, Terence Dolan talking once about why English people love um, uh, Mrs. Brown, you know, Mrs. Brown's boys, why, you know, why it's so, he was being interviewed about why Irish people swear so much, you know, why they use fuck, you know, as, a, as, a, as an adverb or as an adjective or as a preposition or a conjunction, you know? And he was saying, he was saying, um, you know, he, he was talking about, um, oh yeah, why, and then the interviewer said, why, you know, Mrs. Brown boys, they use all this bad language. And bad language in England is quite different to how it's perceived to, to in Ireland. And I learned that through, through working on the bull. 
and in America, like God, it's a whole other shooting match. But uh, Terence Dolan said at one point, uh, "Oh yeah, the English like he said he said he said the English like Mrs. Brown boys because they like laughing at Irish people and they like laughing at working class people." And the interviewer was kind of stunned. And she was like, she didn't quite know what, you know, she tried to get him to retract that or to, to explain that maybe that's not what he meant. And he said, no, that's exactly what I mean. He said, that's why they like it. And then I had this moment of when I, you know, when I put all those narratives together, I realized that I was angry at my own people for what they were doing to what I considered to be my country. You know, this is my tribe. And it's one thing for me then to be angry and laugh at it or to ridicule it or to throw stones at it. But then to bring it to London and allow people who weren't my people to laugh at it was a whole other thing. And it was a really difficult moment. Um, you know, and then I started thinking about Irish writers who live in London and write about Ireland from London and maybe write plays that are critical or dark or ridiculing rural people. Are yeah. people who live in cities who write plays about rural people? And I thought it's one thing to write them from the safety of your beds, your, of your apartment, I to say bedsit, not the apartment yeah. in wherever. It's another thing to write them when you live in the middle of the community. Yeah. So like if I'm going to write a play about Kirkaguina, I'm going to meet that farmer going down my road and he's going to be driving a huge tractor with a silage, with silage prongs, you know, in the front of it. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's a whole other thing. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's worth considering. You know, so you're going to be assaulting people's senses like you told, you know, you better, you better be ready for the kickback. You know, you, you better take it seriously. So now I don't assault people's senses. That's maybe what I'm trying to get to. <laughs> people, poor people have enough to be dealing with without me going, you know, <laughs> scaring the shit out of them. Actually, most people need, um, myself included, need to be enveloped in an atmosphere of, of beauty, yeah. actually and of rhythm and harmony and yeah. music and yeah you know i'm not saying you 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 can't do that like for a hundred percent of a performance because it can get a bit saccharine or a bit yeah. nauseating mm -hmm. but 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 for sure we need a lot of that no more absolutely i think and that's one of the things that why uh, when i when i see your work and i see and hear the music and the dance you know i don't have any time for sitting in a theater unless i'm moved in yeah, some yeah. way you know otherwise it's I've wasted an hour or two hours of my life and I really really you know as I've gotten older it's like right if this doesn't move me you know I consider it a waste of time. Loch Nahala, another one of your sort of bigger dance theatre productions you know does that um the very skilled Michael Murphy yeah. is absolutely just the man can do no wrong in my eyes he's just amazing. Yeah. I agree. Oh, I've seen his his one man shows, and they're just you. I mean, you're in a heap at the end. Yeah, yeah, um, I agree. Yeah. yeah, he he just starts that you know that sort of stark opening, and I, that's I think when when I saw the bull and, and other work since, that's what I love about this whole sort of um, almost like a painting that you create. You know, this sort of stark stark world, but then it it becomes another world. It becomes a beautiful world. It becomes a yeah. joyous world, and and that's what I mean by that roller coaster as well. And, you know, but you also feel safe because you're within this theater, you're within this space, you're with these people. You're all on this beautiful journey together. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's it. I mean, that's my, that you could put that in an Arts Council application and you probably have a good chance of getting your funding. I mean, that's very nicely put. 
Michael Murphy thought like 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 Liam would be a person who taught me a lot. Um, I saw his one man shows too. In fact, I saw his first one a lot because I was getting to know him. You know, he did a little bit of work with us on. Um, he 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 filled in for us in Giselle, uh, and he came to Sydney with us. And then he did a little. He he did. He he joined the Rite of Spring uh, double bill when I did it a sec or a third time with the orchestra in London, and he came in and was in that. And he started to become a friend. And then I saw his one man shows, and I had an amazing moment watching his one man show because I was doing all these shows, you know, with like twenty people and like ten tons of peat and a and a yes. tractor. And then I see this fella and he walks out and he has nothing but a pair of shoes. And he just talked for an hour and he made me feel like you described so beautifully, exactly as, as I wanted people to see watching the work I was trying to make. But he was doing it with just him and a pair of shoes. He didn't even have a microphone, I don't think, the, one, the first time I saw it. And then I thought, oh, I need to reconsider and that's when I ended, that's also when around the time when I ended my company Fabulous Beast, it was kind of, I'm not saying it was Michael Murphy's fault, there was a lot going on, but he was part of it in that I realized that maybe I had got distracted or was, um, yeah, I was looking in the wrong places for what I wanted to really do. So at Swan Lake, I tried to, well, first of all, I tried to get Michael Murphy to be in it, <laughs> which I succeeded because he's so generous and he, he went for it with, with us. But then I, I got rid, I got rid of lots of stuff and, uh, that was my first show, like as Chalked Dows, I suppose. And yes. um, yeah, we made that in the in the in the deserted barracks in the army. Uh, the, sorry, the deserted gymnasium, the army barracks in Longford Town. And that was a very it was a really special time. Um, and and Michael, Michael, yeah, I, I tried to. Well, you know, Michael's kind of shape shifting thing where he can change shape. And I know I know a lot of actors can do that, but Michael can do it quicker than anyone I've ever seen. Like he can go from being an old woman to being a young man in a nanosecond. So I also, you know, I realized I, I couldn't do the story of Swan Lake as I had written it, because it's kind of three stories. I, I would need a cast of about 30 people to do it, you know, to do it realistically. So I thought, well, if I, I can't, I can't afford a cast of 30 and B, I'm trying to get away from the complexity of big shows. So who can do, who could play 20 parts? Michael Murphy, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, he, he he's um, he's another one. Like, there's certain people in your life. There's a gang of them in my life who who you go, they changed my life, or they changed the way. I, well, so the way I work in my life are so interwoven at this stage. Yeah, like they're they're in my little head. They're in my pantheon of great people. Michael is one of them. Yeah, and, and yeah. Liam is one of them for sure. And was there ever a moment, uh, Michael, when, you know, you're making these bigger shows, as you say, yeah. <laughs> have you ever, have you ever thought, oh, you know, you've, you know, underestimated it and it's, it's, <laughs> it's like, what are we doing here? <laughs> I, you know, I, I directed one sort of big show for Shimsa a couple yeah. of years ago. It was the most terrifying experience of my life and it, it blocked all the creativity and it and it sort of messed with my head and and I'd had these moments of like oh god am I doing the right thing and <laughs> and I had underestimated it and I I worked you know with all of these people before it was a very safe environment but I had underestimated that role that you yeah. know that, that being the being the leader yeah Oh, it's brilliant. You're, I have to say, I'm really enjoying these questions because uh, I guess maybe it's because you're you're asking them from the inside. Yes. You know, you're asking them from the from the position of understanding and empathy, which makes them really exciting for me to talk about it. So thanks. Uh, I, yeah, I totally know what you mean. 
I I think the answer, the short answer is yes. I had I I've been doing it a long time now, like for thirty years. The little the story that comes to head is to my head to answer the question is uh, I was working. I used to work. I used to choreograph operas, you know, for a living because I couldn't get any work as a as a serious choreographer, uh, which is why I ended up setting up my own company because I couldn't get any work. No, you know, so I had to. Okay, if you won't employ me. I'll just employ myself. But um, I was working as a choreographer, and the uh, I, used to, I did a lot of it, Joe. Like I choreographed operas all over the world, all over the place. So, so you're dealing you're dealing with a high profile atmosphere, and what I mean by that is you're dealing with like people who who either are or think they are the best at what they do in the world. So you're dealing with conductors like you know Char Sir Charles McCarris or directors like Sir Peter Hall, or Nick Heitner or Phila Deloitte or, um, uh, you know, you're dealing with these people who and opera singers who are the you know Bryn Terfel like who think they are. And, and probably are in some cases, you know, the dogs, bollocks, you know, and I'm in there and um, I'm choreographing these operas and really like no one gives a shit really about the choreography in an opera unless it's crap. And if it's crap, they can all talk about it. And then they're so happy then, you know, because you can become you can become like the escape, the kicking bag, the, the scapegoat. So <laughs> I'm not saying it's all bad, but like it makes a better story to tell it like this. <laughs> story i'm the choreographer on a production at the royal opera house and there's the director who in that instance was lovely and there was a conductor who was less lovely and then there was all the assistant directors right and i won this particular saturday morning i go into work and i'm a bit you know a bit stressed because i'm the choreographer but it turns out then that phila deloitte can't come that morning because there's been a some problem with her movie mama me or something i don't know and the, the assistant wasn't there the other assistant wasn't there and then someone looked at me and said, you're in charge this morning, Michael. And what was really interesting about that moment, and so in, a, in an opera rehearsal room at the Royal Opera House, you'd have the chorus who were maybe, you know, 60 people. You'd have the music staff, 10 people, the directing staff, 10 people. You're in a room of 100 people. So when you go, okay, everyone, they all 100 people suddenly look at you. And what I learned in that moment was I had gone to work with a certain level of stress to do with my understanding and experience of my role in that particular scenario. In one second, my stress levels went from about six to about 110 because suddenly I was the director. And you see, you can't get your head around that until something like that happens to you because what you do is you, you sit in the corner, go and look at the director. You know, she doesn't know what she's doing and God, why is she doing that? And you know, you do, and then suddenly you're the director. And then suddenly you're the one that they can all, the guys at the back of the chorus be going, look at that fucking idiot. You know? In that moment, I learned something that I couldn't, couldn't learn in a hundred years. Um, uh, uh, and, and I can't explain it any better than that. So the, the other quick answer to your question was ambition, is something we, we we encourage on our children, ambition, ambition. And I go on sometimes on these think tanks with Dance Ireland and, and, our, and people talk about ambition or the, the absence of it and that how we need more ambition. But I'm not so sure if ambition is something that we should be celebrating because ambition, uh, like the desire to direct a big show, can cause an awful lot of problems. <laughs> and sometimes you're much better off directing a small show <laughs> Because like with Michael Murphy, you know, you can affect, you can, you can affect, affect as many or more people.
by doing a simple thing in a town hall, in a small place, than you can working on a huge show in the West End. Yeah. You know, it's a, so, you know, you need to kind of review the way, the metrics of your perception about, you know, because cause, cause we, I, I did get caught with my ambition with the show where we were doing a, a show in the Dublin Theatre Festival and I won't, I won't name it because it's like, you know, don't say Macbeth. <laughs> you don't say Macbeth <laughs> in the theatre. But um, uh, I, we got ahead of ourselves in that we, we, didn't, we didn't have enough time to do what we were trying to do. And we nearly, we nearly really hurt somebody. Like physically, someone nearly got, someone nearly got hung, actually. <laughs> I said, laughing now. <laughs> well, he's my friend. He's, he's, he's a good friend. He still is a very good friend. But um, again, he didn't really, it looked like he got hung. Yeah. He didn't really get hung. It was like an amazing gift as well. Like that story, like these, 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 these things that are perceived as bad are like these amazing gifts. If you can, if you can hold your own and not fall apart. Yeah. So it looked like we'd hung one of our dancers in front of 250 people in the Samuel Beckett Theatre, but we hadn't. He, 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 he had the experience of being hung and therefore thought he was being hung. It looked like he was being hung. And in that moment in the theatre, it looked like we just hung somebody. And I thought for a second, I had just hung somebody, but actually we hadn't, and he was fine. But in that moment, I realized, man, you're pushing too hard. And the next day was awful because everyone was blaming everyone and the insurance people were in, everyone was in. And I just thought, you got, you, you know, Michael, you got to, so, you know, everybody was blaming everyone. And of course, ultimately it was my fault because I was the director. Yeah. So uh, yeah, ambition, is a treacherous thing. So yes, I have had those moments. Now I have them less. Yes. Now I have them much less. And I think the trick is, is to consider very, very carefully the undertaking before you hit the green button. Yeah. Spend a long time, maybe years. Yes. You know when you buy a house, or if you've ever bought a house, like it takes ages to go through, like it takes months and months and months, and you're thinking, oh, why is it taking so long? Well, it's taking so long because solicitors know, give the fella lots of time to consider does he really want to buy that stone house up a mountain in Kirkland Green and looking at a skeleton Michael? <laughs> you know what I mean? So same with shows. Is, uh, you know, people talk about having a lot of time to develop shows and work, but and that's all that's true. But there's something maybe they don't talk about is that if you're going to put yourself in that situation of putting a piece of work in front of a thousand people, a hundred people, mm. you know, consider it carefully yeah. because you know they can say mean things about you. <laughs> So you, you better be able to sit there and go, that's, you You need to be able to go, I love that. Yeah. And then anyone can say it and they want. Like I've had that, like I've had that with shows, you know, not, you know, on certain nights when it's just gone so well and I walk out at the foyer, I don't care what anyone's going to say to me. And then other nights I walk out and it hasn't gone well. And then someone will say, oh, well done. That was great. And you know, they think it's shit. Uh, <laughs> And it's really frustrating because you know it's shit. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, there are many parallels. I, I guess sometimes get help from, you know, football. When you watch football coaches being interviewed, and I know it's a kind of a joke, and they say the same thing, like, ah, oh, you know, the lads, you know, they, they didn't give it all today and all the hundred percent stuff. But sometimes the way coaches talk about football matches is the way I feel about performances. Like right. tonight, we it just didn't happen. Yeah. You know, 
we got beaten 3 0, you know, and I don't know why. Maybe you weren't concentrating. Yeah, That's yeah. just the way it goes. I so I think once you get your head around all these different dynamics, it takes about 30 years, I think. Like I'm 52, but I think it takes about 30 years. Oh, God, <laughs> I know. Then you're all right, you know, then you can go out there and you can, you know, you're like, you're like your man on Ireland's fittest family, the guy from Clare. You know, you can be the theater equivalent of what's his name, that guy? Maybe. Yeah, yeah, your man. Yeah, you're like the theater equivalent of him. <laughs> I think you know it, it, these are all sort of, as you say, things that you learn from as well. And but if you've something authentic to say, and you you know what you want to say and why you're saying it, which is yeah. which is where I what I learned from that experience as well going yeah. forward. If if you know exactly why you want to say it and what your story is, then who cares what someone thinks? Yeah, yeah. Only, only, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Who cares what someone thinks? <laughs> <laughs> but you know what, though, Joe? Like, if I didn't care what anyone thinks, I wouldn't go into a theatre in the first place. I'd probably just do it in front of my kids here. Yeah, yeah. So like I am excited what people think yes. because I suppose ultimately what you're trying to say and you described it really well earlier I wish I, I mean I have to listen back to this podcast and nick some of the things you said for my next arts council application <laughs> but uh, you know because and I'm joking and, I, and I'm not joking too because the way you say things mm. the way you present your ideas is so important mm -hmm. because I learned you know I've, I learned that from sitting on, I only sit on a few arts council panels uh, I've sat on two and I, I found it very hard. But what I did realize was that uh, how people present their ideas is so important mm -hmm. because you can misinterpret what they want to do by how they present the information. It's like writing a poem or a piece of prose. You need to learn to be very clear. So the way you describe things is so important. Mm -hmm. But um, I think the reason why I put myself in that position, that, that situation of extreme stress, of making a piece of work and putting it in front of a thousand people um, is because I must believe and I, mean, I ain't doing it for the money or, or the fame for fuckers, you know, because <laughs> um, I must believe or I must want to believe or I must want to be there when, like you say, we experience this thing of, of being in something together and that maybe it's like, oh, they're seeing what I'm feeling. Oh, they can see it. They can see it too, that they can see what it is, you know, that I have imagined. And my God, then I must be, I must be part of something. I'm not on my own, yeah. uh, that this all makes sense. Yeah, That's and, involved, right? Yeah, that communal experience is, you know, in the times we're in now, it's something that you know, we all miss so much. And just going, even just going to the cinema and seeing something or, you know, sitting with people together in a theater. Do you think, you know, now that we're in this lockdown and who knows what 2021 is going to hold for the arts yeah do you think you'll change not not why or, or not why you make your work or what stories you want to tell but the type of work that you make like well, well, well no because because i think what what's what's what i have learned like i feel every, everything you're saying i totally i'm with you 100 percent um but i think the type of work that i was trying to make for the last five or six years anyway maybe since rian um is absolutely about community and 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 empathy and you know i don't know i i i don't want to say too much because i don't necessarily have the words i don't want to under i don't want to badly describe what it is i'm trying to do but like all those things we're missing are this are the same things that i was trying to share i'm pretty sure of it yeah. because i because 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 just just doesn't 
for example, to, to use a negative to explain it, like none of the technological solutions that are being made available to us. And so they're amazing for lots of things, but none of them can, can, can none of them will suit what I was doing. I can't do anything because uh, everything I was doing was about being in a room, sat close to someone, yeah. having this collective experience that made me feel like, made one feel like you might be connected yeah. for 10 seconds or five seconds. So um, what was the question again? It was like, uh, uh, until we can do that again, I don't, I, this, my work is, is uh, I can't, I'm a chicken farmer at the moment, you know. I know. <laughs> I know. And what, you know, what, I, I, I understand what you're saying, you know, about these, these, um, these communal um, experiences. But is there, is there, or would you try and make a one, one man, one woman, two woman, five woman show? Yeah. In order to, you know, as you said before, Michael, Michael, created that atmosphere michael murphy and let yeah. us have that experience with just him and yeah. do it on a bigger scale but would you make a piece you know with smaller amount of people or yeah 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 and i've been working on i'm actually working on one and i was working on it already it wasn't like oh, a lockdown project okay uh when i was working on mom with cormac and stargaze i wanted to have michael murphy in it too i wanted to have a narrative through it and i couldn't get it to work so I had to go to Michael and say, I, I, it's, you can't, I can't, you can't be in it because I can't get it to work. But the remnants of what he would have been doing have, have, start, have become a show. So there was two shows, there was a music and dance show and then there was a, a talk or a talking show. I can't think of a better word, God. So I've been working on that ever since. Okay. Um, and, and to answer your question, I've got a good answer to your question was that like, I can't do what Michael Murphy does, not in a million years. Mm. I can't do what Enda Walsh does, not in a million years. I, I'm not that good at most things. <laughs> and I don't mind. But what, what, if there's anything good about what I do, it's the space in between where someone talking meets someone dancing or where someone dancing meets a light or where a light meets the music. Mm. I'm somehow quite good at negotiating those spaces, the transitions in between. So, so, so this, is, this is a good answer, I think. I'm excited to answer this question because I was working on this one-man show, you know, and I was thinking I would do it. And I was thinking of translating it into Irish and doing it in Irish as well. So I was really excited about it, and I still am. But I began to, I, I was, I, um, I'm very friendly with Pat Collins, the filmmaker. Um, I, 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 I've, I, I've, uh, I feel like I'm his brother at the moment. Like I feel, I feel like he's the big bro he's my big brother, even though he's the same age as me. But um, I gave him my script for my one man show to read because I wanted to see, you know, where's it going? And he we had this brilliant. He rang me and he's so he's so polite and profound, and he um, he said loads of stuff that got me thinking, you know. And uh, I, I'm thinking it's not working, you know, it's not going to work. And then I was talking to. Adam Silverman, the lighting designer I work with. I work with the same lighting designer all the time. He's this fellow from Chicago called Adam Silverman. And he's brilliant. Like he's an atheist. Um, like I'm into all the, I'm into all the spirits, you know, and he's like, come on, Mike, you know, he's a, he's, it's brilliant to work with an atheist, you know. Um, so anyway, what I was saying was that uh, I began to figure out that like, if I was to do, try and do a show like Michael Murphy, a one-man show, it would probably be really bad because I need to create a situation for myself where, where 
many worlds are banging up against each other. So my one man show at the moment is becoming a six, a six man or woman show. Uh, and I think at the moment in my head, I'm thinking someone's doing the talking and then the dancers, you know, the dancers are, are this otherworldly kind of element because dancing is kind of otherworldly. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing about the work that I've done that Adam Silverman told me yesterday on the phone was good was that like in Swan Lake, you have the story about the man who's like the John Carthy story. But then you have the story of the children of Lear and then you have the story of, of, of Swan Lake. And then when you put them all together, you kind of get this, like you said, like a roller coaster. Like Michael Murphy's one-man show, I guess it's he, uh, he manages to do all of that by the brilliance of the way he presents information. Mostly, well, he, he's he's extremely physical as well, but the there's a brilliance of writing and a dexterity of language that he has that I don't have. Um, but I, I I'm probably good with image. You see, I'm good with yeah. image. Yeah. So if you've got a one man show, like I suppose you could use lots of video image project like video imagery. But then that feels to me like I'm um, I'm not doing what I'm here to do. Like I'm a theater man. I'm not a video man. Yeah. Um, so so I don't know if that's answering the question, but like they're all really interesting like things that I'm grappling with, and I'm thankful to the coronavirus <laughs> for forcing me into these into questioning these things and i do think that post coronavirus are 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 living with the coronavirus when, when you know if 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 we build up an if we all get more immune or if people if you go the vaccine route or if um if we find a better way to treat it like if we if we could you know imagining the world where we're where, where we're back to some well no i don't want to go back but no. say we're able to go to, say we're able to go to the theater again joe yeah. uh, in the way we described that i think what's happening now will just do nothing but good for that potential future for the theater. Yeah, I agree. It's like, it's so sharpened my appetite for it and my appreciation for it. Because yeah. all I ever did was give out about having to go here and having to go there and like that fucking rehearsal and Jesus Christ, did you see that? Like, you know, and I love it. I so know. like, stop giving out, you know, about the weather. Stop giving out about how, well, maybe don't stop, but know that you're just giving out and actually you fucking love it. Yeah, yeah. And it's the love giving out, you know. Yes, we do. But it's the, I think you've hit the nail on the head with the whole appreciation thing, because, you know, when you work, it's it's still a job. It's still something you have to do to, you know, earn your living. Obviously, there's a, a, a very satisfying side to it. But, you know, I've worked for Shimsa for a long time and there were days where I'm like, oh, my God, in there again, more work, more teaching. <laughs> and now... You know, especially I think at the start last March when the first lockdown where we had to be still, you know, we had to stay and stop. Yeah. And people in the arts, well, dancers don't, there's stillness, but it's a different kind of stillness. There's oh, all yeah, yeah, stuff yeah. going on inside, you know, and I just found it so difficult to just be still and sit and, and not move and, yeah. and missed it so much because I think I was talking to um, my colleague Anne, who, who I've worked with oh, for yeah. a time, you know, and and we just, you know, we're we're making this piece together. Um, we've made it sort of as far as work in progress. Let's call it. It's called "Keep the Faith, Keep the Folk," and it's it's made our it's it's kind of our story really as mothers, as women, as dancers, as aging bodies, all these other stuff. But it's different now because we've had to stop. You know, it's a whole other story. Yeah. Yeah. 
going to be such a different thing when we come out of this. And someone said on the radio that it's going to be like the roaring 20s when we get out of this. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think they could be right. Yeah. I can't wait for that, you know, the, and, and an appreciation and an explosion and an investment in what we do because people miss it so much. Yeah. And, you know, I know there's discomfort with being still for us. Uh, but there's, if, you can, if you can just hold your own and stay cool with it, and I know it's hard, there's nothing but good will come from it, I think, it, it, if you can hold your own and stay with it, because you have to acknowledge that, that there are people who won't be able to hold their own with it and will fall apart. And I've, I mean, I've had, you know, there have been moments for me where, and they're normally Kirk Aguina, I'm sure, are weather related moments. The weather's great, you know, the weather is a great kind, like the weather's like a teacher as well, isn't it? It'll come up to you and go like, Michael, you know, how profound are you really? You yeah. know, <laughs> are you, are, you know, because you, know, you know, profundity, is that the word? Um, there's, a, there's a very close relationship, I think, between profoundness or profundity and your capacity to manage fear and anxiety. Because in my head, like, and John Moriarty, I suppose, comes into my head a lot. Like, and I know she himself had a relationship with him, and I would have loved to have met him. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, he would have been a great man now to talk about lockdown. But like, uh, you, you, you know, if you think of the image of diving, and like, the, you know, the the ocean's just here, and I find the ocean a bit terrifying. My children are like fish in the ocean now. I'm still like a Longford man. From, you know, like, <laughs> sorry, what I'm trying to say is that. You know, I, with, with those guys who dive, free dive, you know, the ability to hold their breath under water is to do with their ability to relax. Obviously, with a lot of practice, too. Mike Murphy does free diving, which makes a lot of sense. Um, so your ability to go deep yeah. is your ability to stay cool and to, and to not freak out, not get frightened. Because when you freak out, you breathe faster and you panic and you start, can't think. And I think with this, with this lockdown, with this imposed stillness, with this kind of relentless confrontation with mortality. Cause it's, you know, it's remember back in the day, so you're probably too young, but like when I was in my, from, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, it was a constant feed of people getting killed in Northern Ireland. And my mother was a great kind of storyteller and a kind of a, uh, should have been an actress really. So she was, she was unashamedly always telling us about this violence and we were always exposed to it, like these, the Shankill butchers and bombs and explosions. And I'm sure it had a profound effect. Well, I couldn't imagine the effect it had on people living in Belfast and Derry. Now I was living in Dublin, but I remember my sister being in town when the bomb went off, you know, in Dublin. My, so what I'm trying to say is that uh, like now we're being constantly exposed to the facts of people dying. Like, you know, we know, we, you know every day we're being told yeah. 200 people died, 90 people died, 100, another thousand people have got the virus. Like, fuck, you know, it's like, um, how do you live with that? It's like, it's like, you know, the Buddhists talk about meditating on death. So when, you, when your time comes, you're not so scared. Well, it's like we're being forced into this kind of, Buddhist meditation on death that nobody asked for or volunteered for. But um, I mean, you can turn the radio off and I do, and you cannot look at the paper, but even if you do that, it's just still there. And what I'm trying to get to is that there is a connection between our ability to sit with that and live with that and be with that and our ability as artists, because I think good artists are those who, who, who can go deep without losing it because yeah. many artists lose it yeah. and I understand why yeah. 
you know, if you go in there, if you go down the rabbit hole or go up the mountain, like you meet things and you sometimes don't know how to deal with them yeah. and you, you can fall apart. So this time is really a challenging time for artists because we're forced to be still. And then we're in this environment of, uh, it's a kind of a sadness and a kind of a, a, a meditation on death. And then if you're of a sensitive disposition and you're a creative person, what do you do with all of that? So, so if we can, if we can hold our own to, as artists, yeah. my God, yeah, it'll be like the Roaring Twenties when we come out because the opposite side to death is life, you know, and the opposite side to isolation is, is community. If we can just hold our own, I'd say a couple, another couple of months, no? Yeah. And I think we could be, we could be heading into the beginning of the Roaring Twenties, yeah. Yeah, God, I can't wait. So, Michael, this was great. Yeah, I'd really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for, for having the chats. It was amazing. Uh, well, I knew it was going to be good. Great stuff. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. I'll see you soon in the flesh. Definitely. And if, uh, yeah, when when we all get out of our out of our houses, call in to Shim and we'll have a cup of tea. Yeah, uh, yeah. And if you're up in Kirkagreen, just give us a shout and come up to the house and we can look at Skellig Michael if it's not raining. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to our podcast, which was edited by Tom Hannafin. You will find further information on today's guest on Facebook and at their website www.talkdowsa.com. Head over to our website www.shimsatira.com for information, news and upcoming work. You will also find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, bye bye.